Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us as we've gathered here today. I want to invite you uh, to join me in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 1, as we continue our study. I want to invite those who are in this room with me, as well as the rest of our church family in the Family Life Center and those who are watching online, welcome you into this study in the book of Leviticus. Before we start, I have to tell you, last week I met some really uh, great people at our Let's Eat event where our guests come and we eat. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm not going to mention names, but one of the couples who I met, I absolutely loved talking to them. And one of the reasons was this. Their first visit to JCBC was the, the Sunday after Christmas. And one of you leaned over to them and said, so glad to have you. Please come back. A lot of our folks are away traveling. Come back and meet some more of our folks. And by the way, the pastor is starting a series in Leviticus. And the woman who told me that, who might be in this room, said, so you can tell people we came back for Leviticus. <laughs> I dig that. See, this is a place for you. This is your home, I got to tell you. So Leviticus chapter 1, we began this last week. And here's how. 400 years, an entire people had been enslaved. Egypt and the 20-hour work days making bricks in the Egyptian sun, that's one kind of enslavement But 400 years, their deeper enslavement was this. If you live 400 years as slaves, it shapes how you think about your existence. In Egypt, there was a particular way of ordering the world. And in Egypt, the imperial order of Pharaoh was those who were most important were on top and those who had the least importance were on the bottom. Egypt stacked people according to perceived value and if you live 400 years in that rhythm on the bottom of the stack you begin to say to yourself maybe this is just the way the universe has scripted it maybe God has arranged my life to be here at the bottom but in chapter 2 of Exodus when the groaning, the crying of those who were stacked at the bottom makes its way to the ears of of the maker of all things. It arouses the ire and anger of the Lord and he rescues them with a mighty arm and an outstretched fist. He comes and rescues them from slavery and that is the story of Exodus. They were set free But there is, as we said last week, a big difference between being set free 
and knowing how to live free. This is where Leviticus comes in. They had gotten rid of the old order of Egypt. That lies in ruins. It's been dismantled. It's been deconstructed. But they have no idea in the midst of their newfound liberation how to reconstruct life in a way that makes sense. And so last week we said Leviticus opens up with this word, this special word, vaikra. God calling to Moses, and not just to Moses, but to all human beings who've ever been stacked at the bottom. Come, come, and let us reorder the world. And you and I can't hear Vaikra without hearing the echoes of our Lord's words when he said, Come unto me. All who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And I just want to know before we open up this text, is there anyone here who knows what it's like to, to walk weary in this journey? Is there any among us here today in either rooms on this campus or watching who knows what it's like to have a sense of disorder in your life? You've been scattered because of the thing that happened and even though it's already happened and it's behind you, you just don't know how to reorder life, how to restructure it in a way that makes sense. And I'm telling you, we are studying Leviticus because this book is for you. Because there are days when I wake up and I look at the world around me and I don't recognize the world I'm living in some days. Where everything that we thought for a long time mattered no longer matters and everything that has given shape to our character and our identity as people of faith who are supposed to live prophetically in a world of despair are suddenly questioning all of the things that Jesus said ought to matter. If ever there was a time when we need Leviticus, Leviticus is now. So I want to encourage you to turn with me because we're going to read this text in chapter 1. And you may, as you hear these words, ask yourself, what in the world do these ancient primitive practices that we're reading about have anything to do with me finding a sense of restructure or order or sensibility or how to live in, in God's world? And, and that's where I'm asking you to drill down deep with me today as we hear these words. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him, Vaikra, from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. It shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against the sides of the altar and at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. The sons of the priest Aaron should put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. 
Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head at the with the head and the suet and the wood that is on the altar, fire on the altar, but the entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. Then the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. If your gift, however, for a burnt offering is from the flock, uh, from the sheep or goats, your offering shall be a male without blemish. It shall be slaughtered on the north side of the altar before the Lord and Aaron's sons. The priest shall dash its blood against all sides of the altar. Anybody getting hungry yet? Just, just. <clears throat> and in verse 12, it, it shall be cut up into its parts with his head and its suet. And the priest shall arrange all the parts on the wood with the fire on the altar. And the entrails and the legs shall be washed with water. Then the priest shall offer the whole and turn it into smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering of made by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. If, if your offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you shall choose your offering from turtle doves or pigeons. The, the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and, and turn it into smoke on the altar and its blood shall be drained out against the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop and its contents and throw it against the east side of the altar on the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by the wings without severing it. Then the priest shall tear or shall turn it into smoke on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. Now, what in the name of all that is holy can any of that have to do with? Finding some sense of order and restructure when life seems to fall apart. I want you to go with me into this text, but to do so, we've got to talk about a couple of things today. Today, I want to talk about Schindler's Ring, animal rights. Notice the spelling there. Sliding scales. And holy smoke. Schindler's ring, animal rights, sliding scales, and holy smoke. Will you pray with me? Now, good and loving God, we recognize that standing around your open word puts us in a dangerous place. For we will hear the words and the wisdoms that rise up from its pages, but we recognize that we are always being transformed by them. So in these moments that we are together, we pray that your spirit would touch every heart who is focused into this moment that we may be transformed in ways that we were utterly surprised before reading this text. Be among us, Holy Lord. Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. 
But if you are not with us, nothing else matters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Schindler's Ring. In 1939, Oskar Schindler moved to Krakow, Poland. He was a businessman and he moved there to open up a munitions plant and get rich off of the war. You may know something about his story because of this uh, amazing, provocative, award-winning film by Spielberg, uh, Schindler's List. It tells the true story of Oscar Schindler who went to Krakow to get rich, and he did. He, he got off to a great start, but what he did was hire Jews in the town to help run his munitions factory. But as he began to notice what was happening in and around that region to the Jews, as he was recognizing what was happening as they were being um, carted off to death camps, concentration camps on trains in mass, men, women, and children, he recognized what was happening. And his motive changed. He began to hire more and more Jews in order to run his operation really with his primary motive being, if you're working for me, you remain alive. So he hired as many as he could and he spent millions bribing the Nazi leadership to allow him to keep what was known later as um, Schindler's Jews employed for the sake of the cause, of course, and for the sake of money. But by the end, they knew what was happening. He was trying to rescue these 1,200 Jews. And by the end of the war, there were 1,200 Jewish individuals whose generations now would live on to perpetuity because of his saving act. And there is a moment at the end of the film I highly recommend. If you have not seen this, it's an old film, but there's a moment at the very end that moves me more than anything else. It's the 1,200 Jews who have gathered there. The war is over and Schindler is leaving. He has to leave in a hurry. And they present him with this letter that they have all signed. And a ring made of gold from the gold extracted from their own teeth. There was a poignant moment earlier in the film when they would remove their own teeth from one another in order to extract the gold and form it into a ring. And there's this mantra as they're taking teeth from one another for this purpose. Thank you, Mr. Schindler. Thank you, Mr. Schindler. And they sacrifice this, this painful moment to surrender this gold that's turned into a ring. And on the inside of the ring, there's an inscription from the Talmud. They present him the ring and the inscription says, when you save one person. You save the world entire. And it's a moving moment. It's a powerful, poignant moment. But what moves me today is that there was something that the Schindler Jews knew in that moment. And it reached back into a deep history the heritage of their faith, when you have been rescued, a proper expression of gratitude requires some kind of sacrifice to say thank you. That is Leviticus 1. 
The first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, it's not about rigidity and law and, and this heavy weight or mantle being put upon the people. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, it describes five offerings. Burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. We're going to get to all those at some time another day. But every one of those five offerings has a particular purpose, and the first three are voluntary. They're not even required. They have as their purpose giving some proper expression of joy. How do you properly express gratitude, joy, contentment, love to the one who has rescued you? They did not know where to start. And these offerings, including the one that we read in detail, in um, graphic detail, was a place for them to start because when you've been rescued, you must learn a way to order your life in such a way that gives a right response to your rescue. And that right response to being rescued must always result in some kind of sacrifice. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had that? I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if you and I had some kind of, I don't know, like a, a rhythm, maybe, I don't know, maybe every week, where we could kind of get together, and every week, what if we, you know, I said some things, and, and we, maybe we, we sang some things, and maybe every week we, we even read some old texts from some old books that, that generation after generation has said, hey, pay attention to this stuff. And what if in getting together in this rhythm, something happens to it? What if every time we got together, uh, I don't know, like on Sundays, uh, we were able to remind ourselves in the words I speak, in the songs we sing, in the prayers we lift, in the text that we read, what if we were able to deliberately remind ourselves of our rescue? What difference would it make? And what if all the things that we do in worship were designed, as they are, to provoke a gratitude in us because of our rescue? And what if every time we gathered, the purpose was to think about the way in which we have been rescued and to let that awareness transform something in our lives and we leave this place and live a life of sacrifice? That is called worship. The first chapter of Leviticus is a call to worship, to be aware that you have been rescued with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And you have the capacity to so order your life that you live rightly in response to your rescue. Can I just ask you a question that I've got to ask myself? What do you do how have you ordered your life in order to live rightly in response to your rescue? That's what chapter one is all about. But see, you and I, we have some techniques now. We have worship. We gather on Sundays and we say things, sing things, pray things, think things, study things, and it ought to have some shaping or transformative impact upon us. But the early slaves just freed from Egypt need a starting point. And although you and I will never bring goats and bulls in here, not to say there's never bull in church, but uh, 
But even though you and I won't bring bulls and goats in here, the reality is we are doing the same thing they were being taught to do, to live a life of deliberate sacrifice in response to our rescue. And for them, it involved animals, which leads us to the second movement of our sermon, animal rights. Animal rights. There is an interesting detail in what happens when these early people of faith, these ancients are being taught how to live appropriately in response to the God who has rescued you that involves animals, a certain procedure in place. Now, it got quite detailed a moment ago. Some of you probably were trying not to think of the details uh, you know, in graphic form, but I will tell you this. In everything in life, what I have learned in 47 years is this. In all things brutal, there is always beauty. And I want you to go with me to see in the brutality, the grotesqueness of this mass slaughter of animals, I want you to see the possibility of beauty in it. The text tells us and the details tell us that the presenter, the worshiper, the member, the, the donor would come to the entrance of the tent of meeting and the place where, where they would meet the priest and they would present. The first step is the presentation of the animal. And it's interesting that it happens in the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's not just here enter through these doors, this is the way into the building, but rather the entrance to the tent of meeting is that space between spaces. The space that divides the holy realm of God and the secular realm of humanity. And worship is always a blurring of the lines between what we think is sacred and what we think is secular. In worship, we are always blurring the lines between heaven and earth. And God designs it that way. Vaikra, come. Come in. So they come with presentation, and in the presentation, they present a male uh, that was blemish-free. You know, it takes extra work to take care of an animal with no blemish. It takes a certain observational capacity. It takes a certain amount of energy and money and time and resources and, and energy to make sure that this blemish-free animal is preserved well. In other words, you grow close to the animal. You know that if you have a dog, and for the life of me, I don't understand it, but even those of you who have cats, they can kind of grow on you. It is not unlike bringing a blemish-free animal because you get to know this animal. And then there's a moment where you put the hands upon the head of the animal before you give it to the priest. And the fact is, truthfully, nobody knows what that means. Even the smartest, the best, the brightest scholars in all the world and all through history, we, we really don't know, they really don't know what it means. Now, some have had theories and some have said, well, it means you're transferring the sin. That's not this offering. Sin offering comes in a few weeks. We'll get there. At the burnt offering, they're, they're called to put their hands on it and, it. and it may be that this is one of those places in the Bible that just doesn't explain itself. 
It might be that they knew exactly what was meant at the time, and we don't. Kind of like in a few millennia from now, when technology changes, they may not know at all what it means if I say, hey, Google it. You know what it means to Google something as a verb, Google it. They may not know because that's something that we just automatically know. So the laying on of hands, and I I tend to believe that it has something to do with this was mine. And I cared for it. I watched it from birth. It was mine. But you rescued me. So we're both yours. That's the presentation. After the presentation, we're told that the donor, the person who brings the animal, does the action of cutting the animal's throat. Interesting. It's an act of sacrifice, a demonstration that this will cost me something dearly. And it makes me wonder sometimes, what does it cost us to give thanks to God? Because gratitude ought to cost us something. It ought to cost us something, right? Because the grace that has bought our salvation was free, but it wasn't cheap. Reality is grace is free. Rescue, you can't earn rescue. You can't earn rescue, love, grace, compassion from God. It's just because that's who God is. But our response to it should cost us something. And it makes me wonder, what must I cut in my life to demonstrate my deep gratitude for God's love? Should I give more of my time, more of my energy, more of my money? Should I give more of my focus? Should I be more present? Because if I'm going to do those things appropriately to demonstrate love and gratitude before the God who has rescued me, it means I may have to cut out some things that are keeping me from giving those best parts to God. And then the priest, step three, takes the blood and he sprinkles it against the altar. And that day, The blood was thought of as the source of life. Without it, you don't live. That's still kind of true today. But it had symbolic power in that day. It was as if to say, you have demonstrated that you are the source of my life. And the blood dashed upon the altar is, were it not for you, I would not be here. My life and the source of my life is in your hand. And then an interesting part of the process of animal rights is that the donor himself, not the priest, but the donor, skins and quarters the animal. The donor does the taxidermy and then gives it to the priest after it's washed. And the priest arranges it in a particular order, which I find fascinating. On the altar, the head first, the suet or the the fat next, the legs or the meat part next, and then very last, the entrails or the inner content, the guts. But it's arranged in such a way that furthest away from the holy of holies is the head. And then a little bit closer is the fat. A little closer are the legs. But the closest in proximity to the holy of holies is the the entrails. And in the ancient mind, the entrails represented the place where the soul was. The innermost being, the true self of you, 
Everything that is truly you, your soul, is your, in your entrails, in your guts. And they arranged it closer to the Holy of Holies because when it comes down to it, worship is not about the head so much. It's not so much about, about the body and what we do. It's about will you present your innermost being to the one who gave you that innermost being? Everything that you and I do here Sunday after Sunday is an attempt to stoke and provoke in you a willingness to be vulnerable and show before the Lord your innermost being and say, look, this, this, me, the truest me, belongs to you. Now that can be either thought of as brutal or absolutely the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. What part of your life have you relinquished to God? Just your head, part of your action, your body, part of your activity, or your whole inner being. Wow. The point, the point of the first chapter of Leviticus, it is about surrendering in response to your rescue your whole life to the one who has set you free. Somebody ought to give me a Levitical amen. Come on. So what do you do if you want to do that but you don't have a bull? You don't have a goat. You don't have a, some kind of a, a sheep. Well, that leads us to sliding scales. Sliding scales, which might be an appropriate time for a sip of water. Don't look. Sliding scales. Perhaps the most beautiful expression of the character of God in this first chapter is right here. It shows more about the character and the, the, the personhood of God than anything else. You may have noticed when we read that long passage earlier that he said, look, when it's time to give an offering, you can do it one of two ways. You can give from the herd or from the flock. And then he goes to give some details. And then we read, I don't know if you noticed as we were reading because it was kind of, you know, PG-13 reading, there were three levels of offering. In verses 1, 10, and 14, in verse 1, we hear these words, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, then here are some very detailed instructions about what to do. Verse 10 says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, here are some very detailed instructions about what to do. And then if in verse 14, the offering is a burnt offering of birds. Here is a detailed description about what to do about it. Why would God do that? Because even as they have left Egypt, there is already a kind of disparity among those who had and those who had not. Isn't that amazing? They just left Egypt in slavery. But as they left, they left plundering Egypt. You may remember that part of the story. That meant that some had the capacity to raise bulls from the herd big animals expensive animals and don't forget this is also written for future generations who one day will have herds and have more resources than they currently did so there are some who can afford the capacity of raising a herd like a bull or an ox but there are some who don't have that means but they can afford from the flock to raise goats or sheep there are those who 
can't even afford that. Because of life and circumstances, they just happen to only be able to afford birds. Because most anybody can trap a pigeon or a turtle dove. And it's as if God, from the very beginning, helping them restructure life, helping them to come close, Vayikra, helping them to give proper response to their rescue, it's as if God is saying, look, no matter where you are, there's no judgment about what you have, no condemnation about what you have not, but every mortal rescued by me will be given the capacity to draw close to me, to come and worship me. So if you have the means to raise bulls, then give a bull because you giving a bull would be a sacrifice and you would feel it and I would believe when you say, thanks for the rescue. But if you can't afford a bull and all you can afford is a sheep or a goat, bring me a sheep or a goat because for you, it'll cost you something to get rid of one of them and I will believe you when you say, no, I really am grateful for my rescue. And if you can't afford anything from the herd or a sheep or a goat, and all you can do is find two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree, you bring what you can because for you that will be sacrifice. And I will believe you when you say, hey, I am grateful for my rescue. Let's not forget that Jesus, oh, this is Jesus' Bible, and Jesus he lives into this reality. He's poor. Mom and dad are poor. And when mom and dad take Jesus to the temple early in his life, we get some evidence that they are now protected because they can give even though they can't afford to give much. In Luke chapter 2, we read these words. When it came time for the purification according to the Law of Moses, i.e. Leviticus. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in Leviticus. The law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Our Lord Jesus Christ was able to express with his family proper worship. Because God the Father had arranged it in the reordering of life that there should be none who cannot approach me in worship, no matter what you have and what you don't have. This kid grew up, and you know what he did when he went to the temple again? He sees an old woman giving two coins. And he says to those following him, this woman gets it. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. They're kind of just tipping the, the temple, but rather she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The apostle Paul picks up this teaching of Jesus, and in 2 Corinthians talks about the appropriate way to give, and this is what he says, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not what one doesn't have. The point, all of it in Leviticus is about empowering people whose lives have been uh, dismantled to find some way to take a first step in giving gratitude to God. Now, in God's sliding scale, God doesn't see the distinctions we see. 
You and I would say a bull is far more valuable or a goat is far more valuable than a dove. But in God's eyes, God is not looking for equal gifts. God is looking for equal sacrifice. And Leviticus says, if you want your life ordered well and rightly in response to your rescue, find a way to live sacrificially. Romans chapter 12 says it, doesn't it? Do you remember in Romans chapter 12 these words? I urge you, beseech you, I call on you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a, can you fill in the blank? Living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable before the Lord. Holy and acceptable before the Lord. What? Living sacrificially. So if you've been rescued, the call is to find a way to, in a day-to-day way, live sacrificially before the Lord on the sliding scale of Leviticus, which then leads us to the last movement of the sermon. Holy smoke. I almost put holy smoke Batman, but it wouldn't have. I didn't have a Batman illustration. Holy smoke. There's an interesting word that's used all through Leviticus chapter 1 when it talks about the burnt offering. The verb that is used for burnt or burning is this word in Hebrew, vehiktir. Vehiktir is a word that literally means to turn into smoke. But I want you to know something about vehiktir, and it's this. It doesn't simply mean catch something on fire. It doesn't simply mean burn something up. There are other words that are used again and again to describe just burning something Vehekter is a word that means to turn one thing into something else. When the animal is placed on the altar, it used to be animal, but then the priests, vehekter, they turn it into something else. And what is that something else? Smoke. Worship is always about coming in one way and being turned into something else by the time we leave. There is transformation that's possible when we worship. So in this text, Leviticus 1, it's not about uh, incineration, it's about transformation. And transformation from one thing to another thing, smoke. Now in the Bible, when you read about smoke, it's never just talking about smoke. It's never just smoke. It's always, when you read about smoke in the Bible, the presence of God. He delivered them with a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night in Exodus. On Sinai, the the top of the mountain was encircled in smoke because the presence of the Lord was there. In the New Testament, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and a cloud descends upon it. Every time you see smoke or cloud, It's an indication of the holy presence of God. Now, why would that matter in Leviticus chapter 1? Because already in the Holy of Holies, there's a smoke billowing up that represents the the presence of God already. It's always there. It's perpetually with them. But when I, as a donor, when I, as a worshiper, bring my sacrifice and I relinquish in demonstration of my great gratitude his rescue, The smoke from what I have offered up billows and begins to merge with the smoke of God's holy presence. And in worship, 
We are transformed in such a way as to commune with God in ways like we never have before. Do you see how spectacular and beautiful, glorious this good news is in Leviticus chapter 1? You can worship, and in your worshiping, you can lay your life before Christ. And in laying your life before Christ, you're transformed so much that you have union with God. Could anything be more beautiful? Amen. Let's pray. Most glorious Lord, we recognize that we have the opportunity every time we gather to remember your rescue. And often while we at times will remember it for a season, we will forget it when the sun rises and sets. We pray that in this moment of memory, as we think about all you have done to rescue us, to set us free, we pray that you would give us the courage to respond by offering our life before you, laying down our life before you, our innermost being before you, to do with us what you please. Let the smoke of our lives rise up and mingle with the smoke of your holy presence and may it be a pleasing aroma before you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, we pray. Amen. <laughs>